In today's modern society, just how important is faith? How can we know that God really exists? And if he does, does he even see what's going on in the world or care? If so, why do bad things happen to good people? Is it some kind of test? If bad things happen, does it mean something's wrong with us? There are so many different religions in the world. Is one better than the others? Or are they all the same? Why should we trust the Bible in our day and time? How do we know that this book written centuries ago is accurate and relevant for us now? If it doesn't make any difference what we believe, then why believe? These questions are important. Let's talk about it. Well, today is snow day. And how many kids have played in the snow? Anybody in this room? Yeah, they're everywhere. So I hope you had fun on snow. It was snow day on both campuses. We are one church in two locations, the Missouri City campus and this campus, Sugarland, and on both campuses. In fact, last night was the beginning of snow night for Missouri City, and they had a lot of people there. It's been a lot of fun. I'm glad you're here. And we're beginning a new series today entitled, Why Believe? And we're dealing with some tough issues concerning God, some tough questions that people have concerning God. And I want us to take a look at four of them in the series. Now, the truth is, many of you that are in this room, maybe you were raised in a Christian home, and maybe along the pathway as a child, you came to faith in Christ, and here you are. You, you uh, are striving with everything you have to live a Christian life desiring to please God. Many of you in this room were not raised in a Christian home. Many of you came to faith in Christ as a teenager or uh, maybe as an adult, and you heard the claims of Jesus Christ, and you believed them, and you trusted him, and you committed your heart by faith to Jesus, and here you are. Your life has been changed, and God has brought you into his family. It's a wonderful thing. And there are many in this room who are still on this journey, and the truth is you just want the truth. And you're on the quest for finding out. You're seeking the truth. And here you are today, and I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that you're here. The truth is every one of us have got to come to a place in which we understand why we believe what we believe. For my own personal journey, I, I, was, I was born in a pastor's home. So obviously I've been around this all my life. But I went through a deep crisis of faith in my high school years. And I went into that time of crisis for two or three years in my life, partly by because of a school teacher that I had in high school. This school teacher shared with me that when he was in college, uh, he'd been raised in a Christian home, and when he was in college, he lost his faith. And now he was sort of had sort of dedicated himself to helping other students in high school lose their faith. He would, he would ask a leading question, and the, from that, the answers of that question, he would identify different students, and he identified me. 
And so then he began, I began to be a target in, in essence, and he and I had conversations, and that was basically what it was. And the truth is, now that I look back as an adult and a pastor on the arguments that he fed me, I realize how weak they really were, but as a high school student, I didn't know that. He should have never done what he did. He should have not done it, but he did. And the truth is, God has a way, as you know, to take bad things, negative things, and turn them for good. And he did that in my life because what happened was, in the process of the wrestling through the faith issues, I graduated from my parents' faith to my own faith, and it became a solid, strong result that happened in my life for which I'm deeply grateful. But one of the things that I made a mistake about, I should have told my parents, I should have told my parents what was happening uh, as it was going on in high school, but I didn't. It is not wrong to ask the hard questions. It's not wrong to do that. It's right, and that's why we're going to be doing that over the course of four weeks as we go through this series together. But we didn't just make up, we didn't just make up these questions. We actually hired a polling agency to take a poll of people from all walks of life and all faith backgrounds and no faith at all backgrounds, and we asked them, what are the issues that you have the, the greatest issues about the whole idea of God. What are those issues? And we took the top four that were indicated in the poll, and that is now forming the series. Four issues, the four key issues that we received, now we're going to deal with them. And the first one of those is, how can I know for sure that there really is a God? Now, it's interesting that the Bible itself doesn't present an argument for the existence of God. It just assumes God. It begins by saying, in the beginning, God, and it goes from there. But in the process, what the Bible does do is bring up issues along the way that give evidence. But the problem is, is that if I do that, if I go to those verses and I just take you through an argument of the verses, there are some of you in the room say, I don't believe the Bible, so you're just wasting my time. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something very different today. I'm going to go fast. You're going to need to take notes. You need to stay up. And you ought to take notes for this. i got to tell you, you ought to take notes for this. And I'm going to go quickly. But I'm not going to use Scripture as the defense. I'm going to use other arguments as the defense. And I want you to know that. Now, before we get into it, there's two things that I want to bring to your attention. The first thing is simply this. As one person put it, and I'm going to read it, if a person absolutely opposes even the possibility of there being a God, then any evidence can be rationalized or explained away. It's like if someone refuses to believe that people actually walked on the moon, then no amount of information is going to change their mind. You can show them pictures of people on the moon, the, the, land, the rover and lander and all that stuff on the moon and people walking on there. And you can, they can even talk to one of the astronauts that walked on the moon. They can even hold a moon rock and they'll say, oh, this is a bunch of lies. Don't believe any of this. Because they've made a decision, nobody, nobody can go to the moon. And it's possible to arrive at exactly the same position about God. Uh, there is what I, I understand to be a new phenomenon called the flat earth 
um, culture or society, and I don't get it. They, they believe that the earth is flat and that all these pictures of the earth is, as spherical is our lies. And for the life of me, I don't get how anyone can believe that the earth is flat. I don't get that. I just don't get it. But I hope they don't do it for Bible reasons because, you know, we have heard for how many years that the Bible calls the earth flat. There is not one verse in the entire Bible that says that the earth is flat. There is not one verse, contrary to all the mockery that you've heard and the claims. But there is a verse that talks about the circle of the earth. But that's it. The Bible says that some people, not everybody, please hear me say that, not everybody, but there are some people that God says, I've given the evidence, I've shown the evidence of myself, and yet the individuals reject me because they don't want to believe in a God. Not because they don't actually in their heart of hearts believe there's no God, but they don't want there to be a God. Not everybody is that way. But if you're there, I wish you would stop and reconsider. The Bible also does say that God speaking, he says, you will seek me and find me. I promise you, you'll find me when you seek me with all your heart and I will be found by you. This is a promise from God. If you actually seek for me, I promise you, I'll reveal myself to you. You will find me. So here's what I'm asking today. This is my request. I'm just asking that if you'd be honest with yourself, that if God actually does exist, would you be open enough to believe and to know him? Would you be willing to be open enough? The second thing that I want to say is, no matter what position we take, whether we, we believe that God exists, we believe that Christianity is true, or you're an atheist, or you're an agnostic, every single position at the end of the day, has to take a leap of faith because logic and science can only get us so far. can only get us so far. And there is a point in which every person has to take a leap of faith. And there's something in God that when he says in, in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that without faith it's impossible to please him, that God desired it to be this way, that there would be a leap of faith. There would not just be a shutdown case. In any direction. And I just say that to say that every single person in this room is in the same boat. All of us are. That whether we believe in God, we believe in Christianity, we, we, don't, we don't believe in God, we're an atheist or an agnostic. No matter what position you take, an agnostic just simply says, I don't know if there's a God or not. And there's not enough evidence to prove it. Even that is a leap of faith because there is enough evidence. All of us are in the same boat. We have to take a leap of faith. So with that in mind, what I want to do is I want to give to you a thimble full of evidence out of the ocean full of evidence that exists. In 2004, the atheist world was rocked by the announcement of Antony Flew. This is a picture of Antony Flew. Antony Flew was, for 50 years, the poster boy for atheism. He was the spokesperson for atheism. He is the guy that 
inspired Dawkins and others to come out as atheists. He's the guy. He's the guy that was a just a brilliant guy and also a great debater, and he debated who knows how many times against theists and, and uh, Christians and, and about the issue of God, and he, he was just very articulate and very convincing. But in 2004, he announced that he had now abandoned atheism and now believes in the existence of God. Did you, did you catch that? Did you know that? In 2004. And then, three years later, he wrote the book. This book. There is a God. How the world's most notorious atheist changed his mind. It's an amazing book. It's a great book. And the bottom line statement in the book is this statement. I have said from the beginning that I would always move to where the evidence was, and now the evidence is overwhelming, that God must exist. So, I have changed my mind. Now, the truth is, it didn't mean he became a Christian. I've read online that he was a deist, but he doesn't say that. At least, I didn't see it in the book. Maybe he does say it, and I missed it. He does say he is a theist. Believing in God. He does say that, but I didn't read that he is a deist. And in fact, what I did read in the book is that he says, of all, he has studied all the religions, he said the only religion in his opinion that makes sense is Christianity. He does make that statement of the book. And then, if you read this book, read it all the way to the end and read Appendix B. And when you get to the end of Appendix B, there is a sense of he really could become a Christian. There is that sense. Now, he died three years after the book came out in 2010. But he was deep, close friends with N.T. Wright, who is a theologian, and that is what Appendix B is about. And he is, was deep, close friends with Gary Habermas, who is uh, a philosopher. And both of these guys were deeply devoted followers of Christ and brilliant men. And he was very close to them. And I have to, I, I'm holding out hope that in those last three years that he came to faith in Christ. What he did say in his book is, I'm still learning, I'm still growing, and I keep an open mind to all the arguments. So with that in mind, what I want to do is actually take three of the many of, of his of his evidences that he writes about. I want to take three of them. So these are not coming out of the Bible. They're coming out of Antony Flew. But the problem is, the good thing is, all three of them are actually backed up in Scripture. So in essence, I am taking Scripture as well, though I'm not telling you that I am. Here is the first thing. God has demonstrated His existence as the uncaused first cause. For hundreds of years, science mocked the idea that the universe had a beginning. And they said that's only a religious notion. It's not true. That the universe is constant. When, he, when, the, when they were mocking the religious notion, there was only one religion. There was only one so-called holy book that identified the beginning of the universe, and it's the Bible. No other holy book identifies any beginning of the universe and no philosophical argument. All the other arguments said that the universe was constant. Only the Bible says there was a beginning to the universe. Well, in the 20th century, science then caught up with the Bible. 
and changed its perspective. And two things caused it. First was the theory of general relativity, and the second was called the red shift. And basically, what these two principles demonstrated to scientists is that the universe is expanding, and in fact, it is picking up speed as it expands. And second of all, the universe is cooling. It is both expanding and cooling, and both of those principles demonstrated there had to then be a time in which it was super hot and it was super condensed, thus the Big Bang Theory, which is the beginning of the universe. And all of a sudden, science in the 20th century caught up with the Bible. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, that says that the universe was brought into existence in a single moment from apparently nothing. And in fact, Hebrews 11, 3 actually says all that is visible came from that which was invisible. And that actually is the scientific principle of the Big Bang. Lincoln Barnett was a longtime editor of Life magazine, and he wrote the book called The Universe and Dr. Einstein, and he says this, the inescapable inference is that everything had a beginning. Somehow and sometime, the cosmic processes were started, the stellar fires ignited, and the whole vast pageant of the universe was brought into being. Now, that statement actually fits the law of nature called the first law of thermodynamics. The first law of thermodynamics implies that no matter can just pop into existence or create itself. Therefore, if the universe had a beginning, then something or someone external to the universe and unbound by its laws must have caused the universe to come into existence. And that's what the Bible teaches and is the only holy book that says that. British physicist Paul Davies, though he's not a Christian, makes the statement, the origin of the universe is the one place in the universe where there is room even for the most hard-nosed materialist to admit God. Here is the truth. The creation of the universe is the fatal blow to naturalism, to the naturalist worldview, because it requires the universe having been begun by a force or someone outside of the universe for the universe to come into existence. But even though that is true, science is working very hard to try to figure out some explanation other than a God. And two ideas have emerged. One, the oscillating universe, and second of all, multiverse. Instead of universe, multiverse. But Antony Flew addresses this, and he says it doesn't make any difference. Even if you go with either one of the two, which he says there is no scientific evidence for either one of them. But he says the problem is it doesn't take away the demand that there has to be a beginning of anything. There has to be a beginning, and with a beginning, there has to be a beginner. There is a myth that says that all scientists are neutral, and they just go where the evidence leads. Well, that's not exactly true. There is a second myth that says all scientists are atheists, and that's not at all true. And in fact, Flu identifies many Christians, many scientists who are Christians in 
his book. The last number I saw, about 40% of people who, who are scientists call themselves Christ followers. But that means that 60% do not. Many scientists are atheists. And what Flew says in his book is he is, is he is dealing with, he knows so many of them. He says, he says basically it is this. He said that scientists are just as biased and just as close-minded about this subject of God as anybody else. In essence, what he is saying is, is that there are many people that are very smart who are willingly blind to the evidence. And this is what Romans chapter 1, now here's the verse, uh, first verse I'm going to read to you. Verses 20 and 21, who says, it says this, now listen. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. What He made demonstrates who He is so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they never, neither glorified Him as a God or gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And this is in essence, in, in essence what Anthony Flew, is, Anthony Flew is saying. So here is the point I'm making, and I want you to hear the point. There is great evidence that demonstrates an uncaused first cause, and that uncaused first cause is God. And maybe you say, okay, I'll concede that because of the beginning of the universe, maybe so, but that does not mean that this uncaused first cause is the Christian God, and you are exactly right. You're exactly right. But it is the first step. And if you'll walk with me for the next three weeks, I think that I can help us with more steps, and I'm asking you, stay with me. Walk with me through the series. It is the first step. So what does creation tell us about God? That he is transcendent, which means that he stands apart and separate from his creation, or he couldn't have created. Second of all, he has unimaginable intelligence and power and he intended to reveal himself to his creation, and I'll show you that point in the third point that I give you today. This is the idea of Romans 1.20 when it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what he made, so that people are without excuse. The second issue is this, that God has demonstrated his existence through the anthropic principle. Through the anthropic principle. From the very moment that um, the first astronauts landed on the moon and took this picture that is behind me, it has just been cemented in our heart because it was so astonishing. This giant blue, alive earth contrasted with the desolate moon surface in front of it. And do you notice? There's a car. Do you see it? Which is evidence that a man went to the moon because everywhere men go, there has to be a car nearby. And you know that. You understand that. The anthropic principle states that in our own universe there are an overwhelming number of seemingly arbitrary and unrelated values in physics 
that have one common denominator. They are precisely the values needed to produce a universe capable of supporting life. And together, they demonstrate that the earth was fine-tuned for life, just as the Bible says, and that we are here on purpose, not by accident. That's the anthropic principle. NASA calls uh, the earth the Goldilocks planet. And you know where they get the Goldilocks. It's from the children's story, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Remember Goldilocks and the Three Bears. There's Goldilocks. There's a little girl named Goldilocks. She gets lost in the woods. She's trying to find her way out. She comes across a house, and she didn't know that three bears lived in the house. She knocked on the door. No one was there, but it was unlocked, so she went inside. She was so hungry. She went into the kitchen, and there on the table were three bowls of, of porridge, three bowls of soup. One of the bowls she tried to eat from, and it was too hot. One, it was too cold. But the third one was just right. The same was true about the chairs in the living room and the beds in the bedroom. One was too hard. One was too soft. The other one was just right. And what NASA is saying is that our earth, amazingly, is just right. It's just right perfect, the right size, the right distance from the sun, the right place in the Milky Way, in just the right solar system. And in fact, without Jupiter and Saturn, more than likely no life could be sustained because they are the the vacuum cleaners of gobbling up all of these space rocks that would totally destroy, devastate life on Earth. Everything has to be exactly the way it is. And it's not just a handful of things. It's hundreds of things, thousands of principles that all come together and are perfectly fit for each other. And the slightest change, the slightest change of any of these would eliminate any chance of life on the earth. This is why... Freeman Dyson, a physicist and mathematician, says, the more I examine the universe, the more evidence I find that the universe, in some sense, must have known we were coming. Now, it is that quote that Antony Flew writes an entire chapter on. That quote is his quote, and he talks about the anthropic principle, but he makes this statement that I had never heard before, I had never read anywhere, and here is his statement, and it is on page 96 of his book. He says that one of the aspects of entropy is the law of nature, the laws of nature, and he says the important point is not merely that there are laws tied in nature but that these regularities are mathematically precise, universal, and tied together. Do you see what the point he's making? He says the language of every one of these laws of nature are all mathematical, and they're all the same language. Einstein spoke of them as reason incarnate. The question we should ask is how nature came packaged in this fashion. This is certainly the question that scientists from Newton to Einstein have asked and answered. And their answer 
was the mind of God. What flu is talking about is there's not just laws of nature, but all of them speak amazingly the same language and all work together as though they are one unit. They speak mathematics, which suggests that an intelligent mind brought them into being. That's his point. Francis Crick, Nobel Prize winner and molecular biologist, said, An honest man, armed with all the knowledge available to us now, could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. As many are the conditions which would have had to be satisfied to get it going. And it's to that truth that physicist Heinz Pagel says this, If the universe appears to be tailor-made for life, the most straightforward conclusion is that it actually was tailor-made, created by a transcendent God. Well, if there are thousands of these principles that all come together and work together on one language mathematics, why doesn't every scientist just concede? And Patrick Glenn of George Washington University says it this way, the mainstream scientific community has in fact shown its attachment to the atheistic ideology of the random universe to be in some respects more powerful than its commitment to the scientific method itself. What is he saying? He is saying when the evidence disagrees with the atheistic ideology, many science, scientists will ignore the evidence. And I'm asking you today not to do that. I'm asking you to take a good hard look at all the conditions that together create life in this universe so detailed, so powerful of a statement are they about the existence of God. And the fact that they all speak the same language, mathematics, is absolutely astounding. There is a third principle that I want to present to you that comes from his book, Flew's book, and it's simply this. God has demonstrated his existence through the amazing design of DNA. Darwin himself thought that a single cell, human body cell that we have in our body, billions and whatever number in our body, Darwin believed that this was just had a glob of protoplasm with some very simplistic uh, machinery, if you want to call it that, sim simplistic elements inside that cell. And that's what I was taught in science as I was growing up. But exactly the opposite has turned out to be the, the case. In fact, so detailed and so complex, so complex is every cell in your body that it is shocking to think somehow, some way, it all just happened. This is why scientist Stephen Meyer wrote the book called Signature in the Cell. I wish you'd read that book. It's a pretty, it's a pretty heady book. Signature in the Cell. And Stephen Meyer, brilliant man, said that after all of the research and the discoveries of what is inside of every cell of our body, that it has to be the fingerprint of God because it is so detailed, it is, it is so uh, uh, um, complex that there's not another explanation for it. 
Here is a picture of human DNA, and it's just one little slice. It goes a long ways. And, and what, what Stephen Meyer says in his book is that DNA has been proven to be more complex than the most complex computer that exists in the world today. Not one of us would believe that a complex computer just would have happened. It would have had to have a design, and that's what Stephen Meyer is saying. And it's not just about the, the DNA, but it's also about the machines that are in every one of your cells. Machines in your cell. Did you know there's a machine that actually opens up the DNA? Another machine that then comes and copies each part of the DNA, and then that first machine closes the DNA back up again, and the other machine then duplicates that DNA so that the cell can split. Did you know that? And there's machines all through this. One of the machines is called a flagellum, and this is a picture of the flagellum. Now, this is not a picture of it. Uh, it's, it's a drawing of it, but it is a drawing of it sort of crossways. And you're going to notice that what looks like a tail is actually a rotor. It's actually how it's a bacterial machine that is inside every one of our cells. And it is a rotor, and that rotor propels it like a rotor on a boat. And the rotor is propelled by this machinery that's inside. Those are gears. Those are gears. And Stephen Meyer takes this one piece and he says, come on. He calls it irreducible simplicity. Irreducible simplicity in which he says not one part of it will work unless every part of it is there. So it could not have evolved. It would have had to have all been at one shot. I hope I've explained that. Maybe I haven't well, but I tried. This is one of the machines in every cell of your body. Now, if you saw that sitting on this floor and you reached down and picked it up, you would not think, oh, evolution, this, is, this created this. It's amazing. You would say, somebody built this. Biologists typically take refuge in the idea of endless, endless time. Billions and billions and billions of years, anything can happen. But today, computers are being programmed to simulate the whole process Darwin described. And they're finding that no matter how much time is given, the chance that what is now being discovered in the complexity of the single cell just happening is essentially zero. It just couldn't happen. I'm begging you. I am begging you, every one of you, I'm begging you to go this afternoon and look at the YouTube, go to the YouTube, unlocking the mystery of life that I give you the, the address for. I'm asking you to go to it. And if you are, got a teenager in your house, please, please, would you sit with your teenagers and maybe, okay, maybe you have to say, okay, I'll let you have... All this time, the same amount of time on Facebook or something. I'll give you something. But have them sit there with you and watch this. It is life-changing. 
And it is so boring at the very beginning, but take heart. It gets very exciting as it goes along. So you're just going to have to wade through the boring at the beginning. Just wade through it. Get to the end. You're going to be stunned by this. And it's all, it's all got done by scientists. And all it does is go inside the cell and show you what is happening every, in every single cell of your body. And you will, be, you will be astounded. And I beg you to do this. This is, and I want you to hear me say this, this is the issue. This is the issue that led to the decision of Antony Flew to say, I give up. I cannot remain an atheist any longer. The poster boy for atheism, the spokesperson for atheism, I give up. And here is the quote from his book. The DNA material has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting those extraordinary diverse elements to work together. It is the enormous complexity of the number of elements and the enormous subtlety of the ways they work together that demonstrates intelligence. And here's what he said. If you're going to be honest about the evidence, you can't stay an atheist or an agnostic any longer. This is his contention. Today, a growing number of prominent scientists who scoff at the idea that life arose by chance are beginning to write, you won't read this in any science books. You won't read it in any science books for 20 years because it's how long it takes. You won't read this in any science books, but astronomer Fred Hoyle is one of those scientists who's saying this is, just can't be. Astronomer Fred Hoyle compares the chance of life just happening to be equal to 10 to the 50th power number of blind people. Now, hold that thought. This is what 10 to the 50th power looks like. It's 10 plus 49 zeros. 10 to the 50th power. What is this number? I don't, I don't know. Quadzillion? I, I don't know what it is. So listen to what he says. The chance of life just happening is equal to 10 to the 50th power number of blind people who are all being given a scrambled Rubik's Cube. This is what it looks like, a Rubik's Cube. And finding that they all solve the cube at the very same time. And they're all blind. What he's saying is, it's just not possible. This is a thimble full of an ocean full of evidence that is out there. When I was in high school, there was just almost no evidence. I, I couldn't find anything except one book. One book changed my life. Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, rescued me in that moment, in that difficulty I was going through personally. And all of it was about, was about the resurrection. And I so am grateful to Josh McDowell. But today... Oh, my soul, I can't even believe all the evidence that's out there. And the greatest tragedy would be to have questions raised in high school, in college, in any time, 
and just assume that there's no answers for the questions because there are great answers, amazing answers, convincing answers. And I'm asking you, would you open your heart? Would you not be the guy who says, I don't care what you say, I won't believe? Would you not be that person? Just because of what I've said today that there is a God doesn't mean he's the God of the Bible, and I concede that point. But it is one step, and if you'll walk with me the next three weeks, I believe I can take you along that path. Next week, we're going to deal with the subject, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? All of us wonder it. Not, what, not just atheists and agnostics, but devoted Christians. Why do bad things happen to good people? And we're going to talk about that issue, and I wish you'd come and be a part. Would you open your heart today? Right through the center doors and across the short for you, there's a room called Next Step Center. We'll have ministers there. If you want to talk to a minister today, give us the opportunity. What does it mean to, to be a Christ follower? I want to know Jesus as my Savior. Give us the opportunity. Or I already know Christ. I'd love to be a member of this church. Come and talk to one of our ministers. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you today, and we thank you for the truth of your word. Every single thing we've talked about today are all principles out of your word, not just out of Anthony Flew's book. And I thank you for the truth of you. And, oh, God, I pray that you would move in hearts today and bring men and women and teenagers and children to faith in you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.